All right. Hey, good morning. Wow, that was that was beautiful. Um, hey, good morning. I just want to say welcome, you guys. Welcome to the exchange. We're so glad you're here. Um, we're glad you're with us. Let me kind of explain what we're doing. This is our second week here at Quiet Waters Elementary School in this beautiful cafeteria. Uh, it's a cafeteria auditorium combined, and it's, uh, and it's our second week here, and we love it. And uh, we're glad you guys are with us. Um, we're actually going over our, our four values, our values as a church. And so I'll share more about that in a second. But if you would, why don't you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one so you can follow along with us. We need one. We've got silver in the back passing some of those out. But 2 Chronicles chapter 34. So... Uh, we are taking this time, last week we talked about our first value as a church, which was we want to be a church that's built on Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. And so we looked at last week how, how we, we exist to just really elevate Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. And uh, this week, here's what we're doing. We're going to go over these four values. We're going to talk about how we elevate Jesus, we equip believers, we experience life together, and we engage with God's mission. And here's the simple idea, not to be overcomplicate this. We just, want to be, we just want to be a church that's about Jesus, his word, community, and, and mission. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. We want to be known for, like, these are our values. I mean, here's what we want to fight for. Here's what we want to be known for. Uh, there's some great values that churches can, can fight for. Like, yes, we do want people to have a good time, but that's, like a, that's a byproduct of knowing Jesus. Uh, that's a byproduct of being a community that's all about God and his word. And so we're, going, we're taking this time just to kind of walk through these and hopefully become like-minded, hopefully become unified in this. And so I'm excited about today because today we're going to look at the second value, and then we're going to take a break for Christmas Eve and New Year's, and then we'll, we'll continue January 7th on our third value. But today we're going to talk about how essentially we are community built on God and his word. And so here's what we want to be known for. We want to be a community that's known for loving this book, studying this book, knowing Jesus through this book. Uh, we want to equip believers, meaning this. We believe church is so much more. It's not ministry. The church is not ministry. This is the training ground for ministry. We believe that this is where you come in, you get equipped, you get edified, you get built up so you and I can now go out and do ministry. We believe according to 2 Corinthians 5, all of us are called to ministry. The ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world back to God. So that's what we want to do here is how can we get better equipped so when we leave these doors, we can be better and more equipped at, at reconciling the world to God. And so for us, we would say simply, um, we equip believers. That's our desire. Desire is to live in this book, love this book, study this book, know this book, apply this book, do this book as best as we can. We'll fail and we'll repent. And that's, again, that's part of this book. And so we want to be a part of this, all right? This is kind of our hope. This is our desire. Uh, a verse that's kind of leading us in this way is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, just so you kind of know this and can hear this. Uh, but Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, And he, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here's, here's why we exist in a sense. As a church, we exist to equip saints for the work of the ministry. 
Again, it goes back to what we said, that this is not the ministry. This is the, the training ground. This is the boot camp to go and do ministry. And so our desire is how can we best equip you? Do we know what we believe? Do we know why we believe it? Do we have an answer for the reason of faith in Jesus Christ? If someone says, why are you a Christian? How do we answer that? How do we engage them? How do we engage them in a way that engages that existential side, but also that intellectual side? How do we engage the full person? So that's our desire. We want to equip believers as best we can. And so we're going to try to talk about, yes, how we do that, but more kind of the heartbeat behind this today. Um, just to kind of even, I guess, clarify this too. If you want to go up to that last graphic, so not to like kind of make this confusing, but the last graphic, it says, um, I'll throw it up here for you. The idea that we are, last week we talked about our doxology. Here we go. So here's the idea, to put it as simply as we can. Doxology simply means the expression of your beliefs. What you believe about God being expressed so the idea, again, is, it might be through song, it might be through prayer, it might be in different ways, but what we believe being expressed. And now we're going to talk about like our theology, who we're about. We're about God and his word, and we know God through his word. And so we're going to talk about, in a sense, our theology in that way. And so today's focus and topic is how, as a community, do we get back to rediscovering the word of God? How, how as a community, do we get back to loving the word of God again, embracing the word of God? That when someone cuts us, we just bleed scripture. Like, how do we get to that point? We just want this to be so a part of our lives. And so here in 2 Chronicles 34, uh, we're going to read a story about where they got back to the word of God. And revival broke out. And I'd say this, whenever you see a group of people, again, fall in love with the word of God, believe the word of God, apply the word of God, I mean, you're on the brink of revival. But you need people who believe it and live it out and express it. And repent when they realize, here's the mirror, here's the word of God, it's a mirror. And I look into the mirror of the word of God and I go, I have a lot in my life that I need to, I need to repent of and surrender and give over to Jesus. And that, that word of God is that mirror, it just reveals so much. So before we, we pray, or before we read, um, I just want to pray. And I just want to just ask God to speak and move. And this is just more than a Bible study, this is more than a value. But that we really would be a group of people that just love his word and do our best to be committed to his word, and apply his word, and we will fail, but that's where the word of God shows grace and repentance, and it's a beautiful thing. So our desire is just to be that community. So let's pray, and then we'll give uh, this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the time that we can just slow down and look to you. And Jesus, we don't want this just to be a value or a saying but Lord, let us be people, let us be a church, a community that really is about equipping believers for ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let it just be who we are. God, we, we can't do this without your spirit. We can't do this without you. So we'd ask that you just write your word on our heart. It'd be so much more than words on a page, but Jesus, just write it into our hearts now. In your wonderful name, amen. I want you to imagine for a minute what it would be like, and, and really just imagine this. What if everyone in South Florida just knew Jesus? I mean, wh what if it was, what if, what if people actually not only knew Jesus, but believed in Jesus, followed Jesus, walked with Jesus? What would that look like? Like, what would that happen to the businesses? What would happen to families? I suggest that marriages would be restored, that anxieties would be de decreasing. I believe that we would just see people helping the poor. We'd see more orphanages. We'd see more hospitals being built. Like, I want to know, what would it look like if a big, a large group of people really embraced the gospel, really embraced Jesus, and followed it? And, and I would suggest to you that by no means will you and I ever see revival without getting back to this book, 
We'll never see God move and work without a new and rediscovery of the word of God. And it's not lost, but the idea of just us applying it and loving it and focusing on it and talking about it and communicating it. You know, sometimes I think I forget that this, this book can just save people just by them reading it. I was talking to the guy the other day uh, at a wedding, actually, yesterday, and I was saying, don't, I'm like, just don't listen to me. I'm like, just read Romans. I'm like, just read it. I'm like, I believe there's power in this book. Just read it. Just see what happens. Like, take time, write notes. Like, what if we could actually be a culture, a church culture, a generation to get back to the Word of God? And I think we'd see so much more healing and health. Not that we'd see, we'd see sinless people, but we'd see people confessing their sin and looking to their Savior, and we'd just see healing in a whole new way. And I'd say this. Let me just even be really clear here. Revival is not for non-believers. If you ever, ever study just church history, or if you ever look at revival doesn't happen amongst non-believers getting saved. It happens with believers taking the Word of God serious again. And there really is a difference. Non-believers need to be regenerated. Believers need to be revived. And so we're trying to say, how do we get believers to be revived again? How do we get the church to wake up again? Our desire for us, and my, our prayer for this community is that we would wake up. Not just God reach lost people, but wake up the church to reach lost people. You know, Spurgeon said about revival, and I thought it was a good enough quote to share because he's Spurgeon. Uh, he says this about revival. Uh, he says, revival means to, to live again, to receive again a life which has almost expired, to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished, to live again. Like how do, when Jesus talks to the seven churches in Revelation, he says, I know that you think you're alive, but you're dead. And how do we have a church that goes, not just we think we're alive, but where Jesus says, hey, you're alive. You're alive. And then he says to churches, I know you think you're poor, but you're rich. And I think there's a side, like how do we become that more that church? Where Jesus says, yes, I know you think you might be dead, but, or I, knew you, I know you might think you might be poor, but you're rich, you're alive. How do we get back to this again? You know, let's be honest. Not everyone views the Bible the same way we view the Bible. Not everyone likes this book. I mean, this is still belittled. This is still archaic. When I'm talking to people, how last night I'm talking like how I still believe the Bible, and they're looking at me like I'm just like a caveman. I'm like, I know you probably think I'm like, you know, from 2,000 years ago. But you're, it's funny. This is not just a common a common thing that people accept nowadays. You know, the the atheistic Soviet government put out this dictionary of foreign uh, words describing things, and this is how they define the Bible. Listen to this. They said the Bible is a collection of different legends mutually contradictory and written at different times and full of historical errors issued by churches as a holy book. That's how they define the Bible. Now, obviously, we, we don't believe this. Obviously, we wouldn't be like, yes, amen. No, no one would say that. But this is just a common belief. This is how people view what you and I believe. When we come together and we study Jesus and we read about Jesus, this is a common belief held about Jesus. There's a guy, maybe you've studied some sort of philosophy in the background or in college or in the past. There's a guy named Voltaire. He was a French atheistic philosopher. Voltaire said this about 200 plus years ago. Uh, he said, uh, 100 years from now, or he says, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian, can't say that, curiosity seeker. He goes, a hundred years from now, there will not be a Bible, the Bible will not be common. This will just be for someone who wants to study an ancient book. For someone who wants to look back, and it's funny, uh, there's people who've done research on this, and there's some people who, who say this is very true. So he said this, and he died in 1778. And we're told that within 100 years, the European Bible Society later on bought his house, and they started reproducing Bibles from his house. I think that's awesome. I don't know if that's, that's true, but that's funny. But here's, here's kind of the point. 200 years later, obviously, here, here we sell this book. 200 years later, this guy goes, hey, in 100 years from now, 100 years from now, this book will not be around. 
You won't believe it. You won't read it. You won't study it. And here we are 200 plus years later saying this book still changes lives. It's changed my life. Hopefully it's changed your life. And this book is still powerful. I mean, countless number of men and women have made it possible so we can have this book and hold this book in our hands. I mean, people who are just transcribing this or passing this for just owning this have lost their lives so we could have this book. You think about Antichius Epiphanes, who took the Old Testament and tore it apart, and he wanted to destroy every copy of the Old Testament. You think about Diocletian, the Roman emperor, who took the New Testament and tore it apart and tried to destroy every copy of that. You think about the different crusades, the different libraries, Christian libraries being burned down so we wouldn't have this book today. I mean, people, men and women have gone through so much so we can have our own copy. We have like 12 of them. We have like 15 on our phone. Like we have every different version and we're like, oh, it's okay. But it's, it's crazy. It's like they've worked so hard for us to have this. And how do, we, how do we embrace this again? How do we love this again? How does it come alive again? You know, Martin Luther has a great quote about the Bible that is just quote worthy again. But listen to what he says. He says this. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. I want you to hear that again. He goes, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. This book is a living book, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, sometimes we just need to let the Bible speak for itself and say, you read it, you study it. How many men and women do we know who went back to study the Bible to try to argue against it are now believers in Jesus Christ? Like C.S. Lewis, one of the great, the guy who studied, he studied ancient literature. That's what he did. That's where he got his PhD in. He wanted to study the Bible to disprove it, and then he ends up becoming the greatest advocate for the Bible, right? Again, it's alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It just lays hold of me. You know, again, I, I love that thought that it's living because there is this idea, and write these verses down. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And if you look at this verse, and you circle that word inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration. Maybe you've heard this, but it is powerful. It's this Greek word, theopneustos. Theopneustos, it's two words combined. Theo means God. Neustos, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that comes from the spirit. So it literally means God's spirit, God breathed, God's breath. Neustos, pneuma, spirit, breath, the wind. This literally means all scripture is the very breath of God. All scripture is as if God is speaking and breath is leaving him. It's his very word to man. And I want, I want to just point this out because I think this is really profound. When God made Adam, when God made man, what did God do? It says he breathed into man, right? In Genesis 2, God breathed into man, and what happened to man? Did he lay there? Just did he continue to lay there? No, he got up, right? When God breathes into something, you better believe it gets up. Like when God breathes into something, you better believe it's alive. And I love this because God breathed into Adam, and Adam's alive. God breathes into the word, it's alive. We have a book that's living, it's powerful. So I'm bringing this up because I say, hey, we want to be a church. That could what we're trying to say is we want to be a church that's all about God and his word. We want to go through it. We want to study it. We want to know it. We want to do our best to apply it, not just have information in our head, but let it sink into our hearts, let it produce life and fruit. We want to be a community that's built upon him and his word. But here, here's the problem, all right? Here's the negative side to this. You and I can't ignore this. We can't say we want nothing to do with this. Or, not even just that, we can be indifferent. We can hear sermon after sermon or message after message or just read the Bible ourselves, and it does nothing for us. I mean, if we were to be honest, how many of us have just read through the Bible and you go, I don't even know what I just read. You have to go reread it. And you're like, I don't even know what I read. And you have to reread it. Like, sometimes it can just do nothing. And there has to be this, this intentional desire. As David said, God, your word is better than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Your word's better than life. Your word's better than anything. There has to be this, like, love for it, this desire for it. You know, in the book of Amos, 
Amos' prophet actually gave a prophecy, and it was fulfilled, and it took place, but I think, it's, I think it fits today in many ways. It's Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Amos, or the Lord, he's quoting from the Lord, but the Lord said, The days are coming that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Now, this was a prophecy that took place. It happened. It was fulfilled. But I just think this is interesting. It's not that there wouldn't, there wouldn't be the word. It would just be a lack of hearing it, a lack of receiving it. And I do think, we, again, we live in a day and age where we have the Bible at our fingertips. But do we receive it? Do we hear it? I think that this might be, in our, you know, in American culture, this might be one of the most biblically illiterate generations ever. And I say, how do we become biblically literate again? How do we know this book again? How do we study this book again? How do we rediscover this book that already exists? And so here in 2 Chronicles 34, there's a story of a rediscovery of the word of God. The people rediscovered the word of God, and there was revival in the nation of Judah like there hasn't been before. And it's, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to warn you because it's very uncomfortable, uh, but the story is about a guy named Josiah. So it's weird, just, I have to get over it, you have to get over it too. And you're like, oh, you're so vain, probably, but I'm trying not to <laughs> focus in this way. Um, it really is a powerful story. It's the best story I think I can point to. So we're going to read Second Chronicles 34. And let me just kind of be really clear here, because in case, like just history, uh, Israel at this point in time broke into two kingdoms, right? There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. They were basically known as Israel. So, right, northern kingdom equals Israel, all right? Northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was two tribes, is Levi and Judah. They were called Judah, right? But they had Jerusalem. They had the Levites. They had the priests. They had the temple. And they were the southern kingdom. Josiah was the king over Judah, over the southern kingdom. He had the priests. He he was a part of the tribe of Judah in the sense of that's where the Messiah would come from. So, Judah and Levi, there might be small number, two tribes out of the 12, but powerful tribes as they are. So, Here's, here's it, uh, 2 Chronicles 34, look at verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. All right, before we talk about his age, because th- this is crazy, yes, but he was eight years old when he became king. But I want to point something out, just important, I think, for all of us. Look at verse 2. At verse 2, he walked after the, the ways of his father David. Now, let me just be really clear. This is 16 generations later. David is his great, 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 great grandpa, right? Like far away, really distantly removed from King David, but he walked in the ways of his great, great, great grandfather, David. And I think that's interesting. If you look at Josiah's dad and his, his grandpa, not good guys. If you look at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 2, his grandpa Manasseh was probably one of the most evil king that ever existed. His dad was a very evil guy as well. I have no idea how at eight years old, though, Josiah breaks this family chain and becomes a man after God's heart. But let me just even be clear here. Probably for a lot of us, that might be your story. Where you grew up in a home where maybe your dad or your mom or your grandparents, they didn't serve God. But the point you can see here is either we can continue and and continue that history, continue that tradition of not serving God, or you can break the family chains. You can change your family lineage and history. And Josiah was a guy who goes, no, I don't care if my grandpa was the most evil man and sacrificed babies on mountains. I don't care if he's disgustingly evil. I can change my generation. I can change my family line at eight years old. I have no idea. He sought after God at eight. Crazy. But my point is, you don't have to be defined by our family. We don't have to be defined by what our family has done to us or what they've done to others. That we have a new definition. That we can serve to say, I will serve God, my, me and my generation. And this is Josiah at eight years old deciding to do this. Now we'll keep reading in verse three. It says, in the eighth year of his reign, so how old is he? Math people, 8 plus 8, 16. All right. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, 
he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images, he broke in pieces and made dust of them. And I love this. He scattered it on the graves. Josiah Graves. Uh, he scattered on the graves of those. I'm just kidding. That's so stupid. My brain's just weird. He scattered on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. But just hear that audacity, by the way. Let me crush up these people. Let me crush up these people into dust and scatter them on the graves who serve these gods. That's crazy audacity right there. You're like, that's my grandpa. Uh, verse 5. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, so far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. We just point out, I think the Bible is recording his age for a reason. So let's look. He's 8 years old, 16 years old, 20 years old. It's kind of walking you through what he did. And again, there's just so much there. But let's just start with this. He was 8 years old when he became king. I don't even know if at 8 years old I knew I was alive. Like, I don't even know if I knew what's going on. Like, what do you do at 8 years old? Like, Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops for everyone. Like, what do you decree at 8 years old? But at 8 years old, he becomes king. And at 16 years old, and if you want to write this down, but at 16 years old, it says he began to seek God. And let me just be really clear here. He began to seek God. There comes a point in time you and I have to personally seek after God, not because our fathers did or grandfathers or someone did. There comes a point in time we have to seek God personally. We have to seek God passionately. You see this passion he began to seek after God with. And I don't even know, how did he hear about God? Where did he learn about God? Was it stories being passed down? He's just hearing these stories, and by faith he's going, this isn't good, we need to remove these things. But you see the passion he had to begin to seek and pursue God. Somebody say, pursue God passionately, pursue God personally, you pursue God? How many times have we seen the church someone grow up with family or they had a good youth pastor or someone and then they get into college and they, le- they turn their back on God and you go, what happened? It's like, well, someone was pursuing God for them. They weren't pursuing God themselves. He began to seek God. How do, we, how do I, how do I take my two-year-old and go, you need to seek God. You need to know God. You can't know God through me. Like, you need to pursue God passionately and personally. You need to taste and see God as good. You need to walk through that yourself. But he went through that, and then he pursued God this. It says this in the text, but he pursued God all the way to the end of his life, until the day he died. He pursued God continually. And I want to say we do live in a weird culture where it's like, just believe in Jesus and then do whatever you want. It's like, believe in Jesus, and then who cares after that? As long as you just pray that prayer one time, it's like, no, how do we associate you know, receiving Jesus to passionately pursuing Jesus as well? That they're not disconnected from each other. That if you confess Jesus or believe in Jesus, it's going to be connected to a life lived for Jesus. I don't get married and be like, I love being married. Bye, peace out, and I'll see you in five, 25 years. Like, no, when you get married, you stay married. You walk together. You grow together. How do we enter in a relation with Jesus and continue to walk with Jesus? How do we realize that, okay, I'm going to seek God today, I'm going to seek God tomorrow? Like, you're making a commitment, a covenant, saying, God, I'm not just seeking you at one point in time. I'm going to pursue you all the days of my life. I love how Paul said it in Philippians 3, verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count those things as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, and, then versus, and the fellowship of his suffering, that I may know him. Paul's like, I want to know Jesus continually. I want to continue to know him. 
Can I tell you, eternal life, and I, I love how Jesus described eternal life in John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and your son. Eternal life is knowing God. I remember my dad, when I was like 17 years old, he, he read that verse to me and goes, Josiah, it would take all of eternity to get to know an eternal God. That's why eternal life is getting to know God. Because how does a finite mind begin to know an infinite God? How do I have my little cup, my little brain here, go, let me just scoop up God. <laughs> like, like the, all, I would need all of eternity to get to know an, an eternal God. Paul's like, I just want to know him. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of the sufferings. I just want to know him. Everything I've experienced is rubbish. The good things, the bad things, it's rubbish. It's junk to me. It's just junk to, compared to knowing Christ, walking with Christ. See, I want you to see even with, with just what's happening here at 16 years old, at 20 years old, tearing down idols. Imagine this. Imagine your grandpa built that altar to that God. Imagine you worship the God of Baal. Imagine your family was a part of that, and he's tearing it down, and he's crushing up their bones, and he's scattering it. I mean, I want you to see this. He obviously valued the purity of God more than popularity with others. And there's some, just please hear this. There's this weird mindset sometimes that in the church, we think to reach people, we need to be just like them. There's almost like, oh, if we got to reach them, we got to like be just like them. It's like, I understand we need to contextualize. I understand we need to not go and rebuke everyone like, you're evil, and you're evil, and be like me, I'm holy. Like, that's not the way to do it by any means. We need to go in there. We need to go in this, this mindset to, to redeem it. How do I get to know them and love them and redeem it? There is that mindset to contextualize. But again, we can't reach them by always agreeing with them. Sooner or later, someone's viewpoint of life or sexuality is going to contradict God's viewpoint of that. And let me just say this. Again, it is so good that God does not always agree with me, and it's so good God does not always agree with you. What if God always agreed with me? That'd be terrifying. What if God always agreed with you? That'd be awful. I'm so thankful sooner or later God says, this is my way. Every one of us, every one of us, heterosexuals, homosexuals, every one of us has to come before God and say, God, I am not God. You are God. I, I cannot do it my way. My way will only get me so far. Sooner or later, everyone, God comes face to face with everyone and says, you will have to repent of something. And the, that something is that I'm not the, I'm not the king on, on your life, of your life. I'm not the king that's on your throne of your life. Sooner or later, all of us will come face to face with God and realize, oh my gosh, God, God asked me to remove something. God asked me to get rid of something. And I want you to see that there was this, this desire, this value for God's holiness more than even popularity. And it'd be great to see a generation again that goes, I love your holiness so much that I'm willing, if it hurts my reputation, if it hurts me, it doesn't matter. It's not about my reputation. I need to decrease. You need to increase. That we can see a generation again that loves him, loves his word, loves the holiness of God, will fight for those things. And look at verse 8. This is interesting. Verse 8, it says, In the 18th year of his reign, so he's 26 now, when he had purged the land and the temple, listen to that, he purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, uh, Maseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to listen, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So 20 years old, he's casting down idols. 26 years old, he's like, it's time to build God's house. It's time to build God's house, and it's time to actually remove the idols from God's house. And I want you to hear that. It's time to remove the idols from God's house. Now, let's be honest. God dwelt in, God dwelt in the temple back in the day, right? God dwelt behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwelt. The Bible says it differently, though, now for us. God does not dwell in a temple made with hands, but he dwells in us. That our God lives and dwells in us. So let me just make this connection really clear. It's 1 Corinthians 6, we'll throw the verse up. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. Let's just make this connection. Isaiah's like, there's idols in the temple, we got a clean house. 
There's idols in the temple. Let's repair and build the temple. What would that be like for us in 2017? Hey, there's idols in this temple. There's things I'm worshiping outside of God. There's things that are good things that I've now made God things. I need to, I need to clean house a little bit. There's some things in my life I go, God, please remove this so and get your rightful place again in my life. See, he tore down the idols and he repaired the house of God. And church, how can we get to the place more where we go, no, I need to remove some idols and I need to, let, I need to remind myself that I am not my own. That I was bought at a price. My body, God has bought that with the precious blood of his son, Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. They're his anyways. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, are, you and I are where God dwells. And so how do we look on and go, man, there's idols. There's idols in the land, but more importantly, there's idols in the temple. There's idols in our life. And he's like, let's remove them. And again, not to harp on this too much, but if we can go to the other graphic of his ages, if you just follow this, this, this line, at eight years old became king, 16 sought after God, 20 clans the land, 26 rebuilds the house. You know, the Bible... The, the Bible makes it really clear. Age is not an issue for God. Age is not an issue for God. And I tell you, whether it's Josiah at 16 years old or Moses at 80 years old when he began his ministry, age is not an issue with God. Whether you're 16 or, or 80, God began ministry with different men and different women at different times. And there is this, this like, I do think we should hear this, that you can serve God in your youth. We pray for that. I think anyone who's past a certain age, you go, I wish, I wish when I was a teenager, I served God in my youth. How many of you wish, you go, I wish I knew God at 16 years old, right? I wish I followed Jesus at 16 years old. It would have saved me from so many heartbreaks and so many pains, so many different things I brought on myself. And there's something about, hey, we can serve God in our youth. We can serve God like Moses and non-youth, whatever you want to put that, right? We can serve God at any point in time because age is not an issue with him. And I, and I love this, though. At 26 years old, he goes, we need to rebuild God's house. We need there to be purity again in the temple. We need to remove the idols. Now, here's where it gets really interesting to me. Here, here's kind of the, the climax in the sense of our study. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, they're cleaning house, okay? So look at verse 14. It says, now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, he's the priest, the priest, he found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king words, saying, all that was committed to your servants they are doing, and they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me the book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the Lord that he tore his clothes. I want you to hear what happened. They go to clean house, and as they're cleaning house, they find the law. They find the first five books written by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They find this in the, the house of God. And the way it's said in verse, in verse 15 is almost ironic and funny to me. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Please listen to what that means. It means the word of God was lost in the house of God. The word of God was lost in the house of God. And we do live in a time where sadly, and I can't, I'm not trying to push down other churches, it's not that. But I think we do live in an American Western Christianity where the word of God is many times is lost in the house of God. And it is heartbreaking. Because listen, and this is the, the key point to me. When the word of God is lost in the house of God, people miss out on the love of God. See, that's the problem. When the word of God is lost in the house of God, people are missing out on the love of God. That's why this is an issue. You know, that's why we need to read the words. Men, listen, to, he read it before the king. And men and women, we ha leaders, we need to read this to our families. We need to read this to our, our groups, our school, our teacher, whatever it is. We need to get the word of God again. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to know it. 
And it is so sad when I, you read this and you go, how? How is that possible? Like, guys, think about this. How is it possible that the word of God was lost and they find it in the house of God? And go, oh my gosh, we found the Bible again. Like, how does that happen? And that's like, it's funny we ask that, but how does it happen today? How does it, how does it happen where you like, we lost the word of God in the house of God? How does that happen? How do we get back to this place where we say, we're going to know this book, we're going to study this book, we're going to believe this book, we're going to live by this book? Again, and I'm not to like, I can't, I, I can't other, say anything else other than when we miss out on the word of God, when we lose the word of God in the house of God, people will, mi- will miss out on the love of God. And there's this desire for us, there's this burden for us as the church to get back to this. I want you to see in verse 19, he heard it and he tore his clothes. There's just repentance over this. Okay, revival starts with the rediscovery of the word of God and repentance. Can we be honest and start there? If there's ever going to be God to do something, a work in our, in our church in South Florida, it will be a rediscovery of his word in repentance. They'll be, oh my gosh, there it is. God, forgive me. And, he, and again, it's like his heart wasn't there. It's like it just was not known. There wasn't just revelation of it yet. But as soon as, the revel- as, as there's revelation, there's repentance. As soon as there's knowledge of it, there's like, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. And that's what it has. It has to stir us to action. It can't just be, oh my gosh, we know that things are off and oh well. Like it has to stir us to action. L- listen, we'll move forward, but look at verse 29. It stirs them to action in verse 29. I'm going to keep reading what it says here in verse 29. It says, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Verse uh, 31. Then the king, listen, the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. To follow the Lord. What a good covenant. God, I will follow you and keep your commandments and his testimonies and his statutes, statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform, now to do it, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who are present, everyone who's present in Jerusalem and Benjamin, take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their families. There's this discovery of this word of God. There's this repentance and saying, hey, we need to do something. I am making a covenant to know God's word, to love God's word, to study his word, and to perform his word. And he says, hey, make a covenant too. Hey, make a vow too. That you will know his word, love his word, study his word, and, and we'll do our best to perform his word, to do his word. There's something so powerful about that. There's something powerful when men can say, hey, I've blown it. I've messed up. We need this to lead our lives now. Again, I want you to see this. This, this young guy, Josiah, it's like God, God was just waiting for this moment to happen. You know, it's funny. You can actually read Isaiah, and this is a side note, but in Isaiah, it was prophesied that this guy, Josiah, would be born, and this would happen. It's just an interesting dynamic to that. But here, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this is so important. It took one person to hear the word of God and say, we're going to do something. It took one person to say, there's going to be change. It takes one person to say, I'm going to take it serious. Do you want to take it serious with me? You know, when you look at great movements and you look at great things that have happened, I want you to see, there's this guy named, you know, it's funny, it's fun to study, like, old things that have happened because you go, oh, we can learn something. But there's a guy named Rodney Gypsy Smith. His his nickname was Gypsy. Rodney Gypsy Smith, he grew up in England. He was a gypsy. Poorest of poor, right? I mean, poor guy, he sold buckets. (laughs) Okay, like, (laughs) I don't know, that's kind of a funny occupation. Hey, you want to buy a bucket? But he sold buckets. He gets saved. He becomes a great evangelist in England, the UK, and in America. And this guy really kind of changed his generation in so many ways. This one guy who, who realized, what are we doing? What am I doing? And he said this quote, maybe you've heard something similar to this quote. 
But he said it this way, and I thought it's, it's so profound. He said, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. It's like, where does revival get, begin? Where does it start? He goes, pray. Draw a circle around yourself and say, God, within this circle, start a revival. How do we get to that point? How do we, how do we, how do we hear this message right now, go home and do that? We will miss the point if we hear this and go, that was good. And don't go home and draw that circle in a sense and pray that prayer and say, God, start a revival here. We will miss the point. I think when we individually do that today, when we go home and draw that circle and say, God, start a revival right here in the circle. I think that's when we begin to see things change and move. The point is, we got to remember this. We serve a God who is way more passionate for, for lost people than we are. I don't want to think for a second that I have more passion than God. I don't want to think for a second that I love people more than God loves people. There are people that need Jesus. There are people that are serving the Baals of their day. And it's breaking the heart of God. Like, we can't be okay with it. There is something, for some reason, we try to shy away. Even in church, we don't want to talk about it. But we can't be okay with the, the abortion of, of, of children daily. We can't be okay with that. We can't be okay with certain things that are happening. Now, we've got to love those people. And we've got to say there's redemption and forgiveness. And we've had close friends who've got, walked through that. And you're walking them through healing and restoration, but we can't be okay with that act. There's certain things that, we just, that need to stir us. We can't be okay with people serving other gods other than the one true God. Like, there's certain things that need to move us and stir us and not just go, okay, I know that's an issue somewhere out there, but how do we go, God, let's start here? How do I pray for that one person by name? I'm going to pray for them by name until they believe in Jesus. I'm going to pray for them by name until they come to know him and experience him themselves. How do we just not be okay with it? Not, not to the point where we're just not okay with it, but it moves us to action. Where he stands up and says, I'm making a vow to God that we will follow God and do his word. Who wants to make a vow with me? And that is literally the call today. And it's not that you need to stand up and have this big public thing, but who wants to make a vow in a sense to their heart to God that I will follow God's word and I'll do my best to perform it in this community, in a sense with other brothers and sisters that hold me to this. No, it's not a shallow vow I made to myself that no one knows about. But it's a vow I want to make publicly and openly. I want to share that, hey, I want to follow God's word. Hold me to that. When I'm not, correct me with the word of God. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to sting, but I need that. How do we do that? How do we embrace that? How do we say it's not okay for other people to continue in that action because we care for their eternities and we care for their souls? And God more so. You know, when Paul, is, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul's basically talking about preaching the gospel. And, and I love this. He goes, if I preach the gospel, there's nothing special about me. <laughs> He's like, it's funny because sometimes we'll share the gospel with people and be like, I just shared the gospel with someone. <laughs> and like, we feel special. Paul's like, if I share, there's nothing special. He actually said, in fact, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, right? <laughs> He's like, it's, nothing, it's not like I'm special. Like, oh, well, you shared the gospel. Like, sure, we should encourage that. Of course, we should encourage that. But he's like, it's nothing special about that. That is the great commission. That is the great command. He goes, in fact, I'm cursed if I don't. That's his perspective. How do I get to this point where it's not like, hey, guys, I shared the gospel. But how do we go ahead and go, it's just a part of my life? It's just a part of my life. Jesus says, go, as you go, make disciples. How does it just, as I go, as I live? Not I'm going on a mission trip somewhere and I do discipleship like a week and then I stop for the other 51 weeks. But like, no, as I go, as I'm living, as I'm walking, as I'm breathing, it's just a part of our life. It's just a part of who we are. This is something we take serious every day, not once a week or once a year. It's just a part of our life every day. Revival begins, I believe, when one person receives the word of God, responds to the word of God, repents because of the word of God, and gets focused on the word of God. Here's, here's what's really interesting. One of the first thing that happens, they establish the Passover. And I'd love for you to keep reading the Chronicle, this book, because if you keep reading it, 
He's like, hey, we need Passover. We need to remember that there was a lamb slain for our sins. Hey, we need to remember this, guys. Let's, let's establish Passover again. We're not, doing, we're not doing this. We're not doing Passover. And their focus and their repentance started with the death of an animal. It started with uh, the substitutionary death. And that is kind of the point of church, right? Where you look on and go, oh my gosh, the word of God. Ah, oh, my life, I'm not doing it. But we go, let's remember that substitute who took our place. Let's remember the Passover lamb. Let's remember the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Because again, it's not this idea of, oh, acts and works. It's, it's, I am resting in that Passover lamb. I'm resting in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. But there's not a cop-out for me to not get involved in this, to not want to share this and be a part of this. And so there's this idea, there's this blend of, let's, let's, let's make a covenant, but let's also remember the Passover. Let's make a covenant to God. I will serve you and know you and walk with you, but God, I'm also going to remember what you've done for me first. That you gave us your lamb, the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's my like, last kind of thought for, for this before we move on to something else. But my last thought with this really is we can know the word of God and still not know God. And that's the danger. The danger is coming to church and you know the word of God, but you don't know God. That's the danger for me. Bible study cannot just be Bible study where I can tell you verses. I'm missing the point. You know, my wife has written me love letters before in the past. What, what, what if every morning I bro- broke out those love letters and I'm reading those love letters and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I just love your letters. Like, they're so great. It's like five years ago. They're so good. She's like, well, I, I want to talk to you today. Like, we need to read the word of God. I'm not saying, I'm saying embrace the word, love the word, know the word, but do you know the God behind the word? Do we know the person who wrote the letter? Do we communicate with the person who wrote the letter? You see, the, the point is not just to read this, but to know the God who wrote this. So the idea of the word of God for me is this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, that is word, that is scripture, that is written down, that is is the logos, also became flesh, also became tangible, also became very personal. Do we know Jesus in this way? Not just know the Bible, know verses, because we went to some Bible camp back in the day. Like, no, do we know the word of God? Do we know Jesus, the word of God? And that is the great danger for me or anyone else who might read the word of God and love the word of God, is that you know the word, but you don't know the person behind the word. Let us be a community that knows the person behind the word. Jesus is the word made flesh. It's so much more than just the written, and it is the written word. I'm not trying to diminish this. I'm saying let's get back to this, but I'm saying let's get back to also the author behind it. Amen? There's so much more behind that. My desire for us is this. We cannot equip you if we don't know this. I cannot train you. We cannot teach you. We cannot be better if we don't know this. We need to know this. We will be a community that is dedicated to the word of God. We will be a community that is dedicated to Jesus Christ, our foundation, and Jesus Christ who is also the word. That's where it starts, that's where it begins, that's where it ends. It's going to be starting with Jesus and ending with Jesus. Amen? Now, a few things I want to share with you guys in light of that, and don't miss out and don't check out on this. When we say our core values, like we equip believers, I mentioned this last week, we have something called plumb lines, something attached to them. So remember, a plumb line is a string with a weight to measure true vertical, right? So the idea is, here's how we want to do this. So when we say we equip believers, and we'll throw this up for you, our first plumb line, our first thought is we build our lives on God's word. All right, so when we say, can we throw that slide up? When we say we equip believers, we're saying this, we want to build our lives on God's word. We want our lives to be built on this book. I hope, I hope in that room where there's just a couple little kids and one being mine, I want, our desire is fun. I love talking to Jocelyn and our kids ministry team. It's like, we want mini theologians. <laughs> like, we want people to know the word, and not just know, like, don't lie, lying's bad, but know the God who is truth. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to just be like morality, like, hey, don't do that. Do this. Do that. Don't do that. We want to be like, know the God who is, you're made in God's image, and God is truth. Like, we want to teach it in a way where it's redemptive, where it's focused on Jesus. We want to build our lives from a young age to adulthood on God's word. Number two would be this. Uh, we want to use the blueprints of the early church as best as we can. We want to look at Acts. We want to look at First and Second Timothy. We want to, our desire is, you know, again, you don't find leaders, you, you make leaders, 
We want to, we as best as we can, make leaders. We want to pray and have Acts 6 happen where God raises up deacons and God raises up elders, where there's a plurality of elders leading this. That is our prayer. Just so you guys do know, there's five other pastors a part of this who are helping behind the scenes with a lot of these decisions and direction. And we need to raise it up in-house. Our prayers that God raises up people who are part of this community in that way. God, let us be Acts 2. Let us use the blueprints of the early church. And daily, God added to the church. And daily, they went house to house and lived in community. That is our desire. Lastly, we'd say this. We want to cultivate gospel-centered lifestyles. How do we equip believers? We want to cultivate gospel-centered lifestyles. Here's a verse I would just write down, a verse that's just so impactful. It's 2 Timothy 2, 2. Paul basically says, Timothy, take the things I've taught you and teach them to other men who can teach other men. Here's the thought. Listen to this. Paul, in that verse, lists four generations. I'm teaching you, Timothy. You're going to teach another guy who's going to teach another guy. Me to you, to him, to him. Four generations of discipleship in that verse. That is our desire. How do we, like, in a sense, four generations of discipleship happening? That someone's pointing to us, and we're pointing to others, we're pointing to others, we're pointing to others, and it continues. It can't not just end with me. If God's invested in you, if God's given you something, it cannot stay with you. God said to Abraham, I have blessed you so you can be a blessing. God has given us things so it can be flowing into us, out from us to others. Amen? The church will die when it just, we just get invested in it stays with us. That's when the church will die, when we don't pass off to the next generation. And so here's why I'm saying all of this. This is, this is what we want to fight for. This is what we want to be known for. We're going to be far from perfect. We're going to blow it, but we're going to use these to guide us in what we do. Saying, Jesus, we want it to be about you and for you. We want your word to govern us and lead us in every way. And we submit to your word. When, when my feelings or what I think is best disagrees with your word, I'm going to submit to your word. I'm going to go with what you say, not what I feel. Amen? That's our desire here. Our desire is to be this as best as we can. So here's my hope for us now, tangibly. Next week is Christmas Eve, right? And we talked about this beforehand, but this is the time of year where like, people are like, begrudgingly like, okay, I guess I'll go to church. Right? It's like Christmas and Easter, obviously. We just ask that our team would pray for one person by name and invite one person. We're going to ask that you just simply do the same. This is the time of year people go, I guess I'll go. And I guess I'll do my religious routine. And look, they know that God wants to show up and speak to them and, and, and engage them in a way but maybe, maybe they haven't been engaged before. And so we're going to ask that you take this week just to pray individually for that person. We're going to pass out some flyers on the way out. Just grab some and just take some and just pray for people. And you don't know what kind of seeds we're sowing in that sense. And also we're going to point this out that it's mid-December. In January, we are going to start community groups again. We don't have a midweek service, as you guys know. The way we, we equip believers, is another way we do this is saying get in groups and take what we've talked about on the weekends and digest it. Some of you are thinking, Josiah, you talk too fast. And there's too much content. All right, that's why we have community groups. Take that, digest it, chew on it, you know, meditate on it, apply it as best you can in a smaller community. Amen? And honestly, guys, we need community group leaders. And if you'd like to be a part of that, and I could just meet with you or have coffee with you, I would love to do that. We're having a community group leader meeting at my house on Thursday. We have five leaders right now. We would love to have a guy, girl. We'd love to have different things. So just pray over that if that's, if that's you. And we can get coffee and check that out. All right, let me just pray. Let's pray. Let's just close our time by worshiping our God and getting back into a sense to not just knowing his word, but expressing his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again. I know that in my life, when I read your word, I'm so far, practically, sometimes from what I know from how I live. And Jesus, I ask that you would surround me, surround us with other believers who want to hold us accountable to your word. God, because your word is life. Your word brings freedom. So speak to us, God. Let us just not know your word. Let us know you. You are the author behind the word.
You are the finisher of the word. So we thank you. We look to you. We just want to praise you now in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.